Chapter Four of One Basket by Edna Ferber. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Farmer in the Dell. Old Ben Westerveld was taking it easy. Every muscle taunt, every nerve tense, his keen eyes vainly straining to pierce the blackness of the stuffy room. There lay Ben Westerveld in bed, taking it easy, and it was hard, hard. He wanted to get up. He wanted so intensely to get up that the mere effort of lying there made him ache all over. His toes were curled with the effort. His fingers were clenched with it. His breath came short, and his thighs felt cramped. Nerves. But old Ben Westerveld didn't know that. What should a retired and well-to-do farmer of fifty-eight know of nerves, especially when he has moved to the city and is taking it easy? If only he knew what time it was. Here in Chicago you couldn't tell whether it was four o'clock or seven unless you looked at your watch. To do that it was necessary to turn on the light, and to turn on the light meant that he would turn on, too, a flood of querulous protests from his wife, Bella, who lay sleeping beside him. When, for forty-five years of your life, you have risen at four-thirty daily, it is difficult to learn to loll. To do it successfully you must be a natural-born loller to begin with and revert. Bella Westerveld was and had. So there she lay, asleep. Old Ben wasn't and hadn't. So there he lay, terribly wide awake, wondering what made his heart thump so fast when he was lying so still. If it had been light, you could have seen the lines of strained resignation in the sagging muscles of his patient face. They had lived in the city for almost a year, but it was the same every morning. He would open his eyes, start up with one hand already reaching for the limp, drab, work-worn garments that used to drape the chair by his bed. Then he would remember and sink back while a great wave of depression swept over him. Nothing to get up for. Store clothes on the chair by the bed. He was taking it easy. Back home on the farm in southern Illinois, he had known the hour the instant his eyes opened. Here the flat next door was so close that the bedroom was in twilight even at midday. On the farm he could tell by the feeling, an intangible thing, but infallible. He could gauge the very quality of the blackness that comes just before dawn. The crowing of the cocks, the stamping of the cattle, the twittering of the birds in the old elm whose branches were etched eerily against his window in the ghostly light, these things he had never needed. He had known. But here, in the unsylvan section of Chicago, which bears the bosky name of Englewood, the very darkness had a strange quality. A hundred unfamiliar noises misled him. There were no cocks, no cattle, no elm. Above all, there was no instinctive feeling. Once, when they first came to the city, he had risen at twelve-thirty, thinking it was morning, and had gone clumping about the flat, waking up everybody, and loosing from his wife's lips a stream of acid vituperation that seared even his case-hardened sensibilities. The people sleeping in the bedroom of the flat next door must have heard her. You big rube, getting up in the middle of the night and stomping around like cattle. You'd better build a shed in the back yard and sleep there if you're so dumb you can't tell night from day. Even after thirty-three years of marriage, 
he had never ceased to be appalled at the coarseness of her mind and speech. She who had seemed so mild and fragile and exquisite when he married her. He had crept back to bed shamefacedly. He could hear the couple in the bedroom of the flat just across the little court grumbling and then laughing a little grudgingly and yet with appreciation. That bedroom, too, had still the power to appall him. Its nearness, its forced intimacy, were daily shocks to him whose most immediate neighbor, back on the farm, had been a quarter of a mile away. The sound of a shoe dropped on the hardwood floor, the rush of water in the bathroom, the murmur of nocturnal confidences, the fretful cry of a child in the night, all startled and distressed him whose ear had found music in the roar of the thresher and had been soothed by the rattle of the tractor and the hoarse hoot of the steamboat whistle at the landing. His farm's edge had been marked by the Mississippi rolling grandly by. Since they had moved into town he had found only one city sound that he really welcomed, the rattle and clink that marked the milkman's matutinal visit. The milkman came at six, and he was the good fairy who released Ben Westerveld from Durance Vile, or had, until the winter months, made his coming later and later, so that he became worse than useless as a timepiece. But now it was late March and mild. The milkman's coming would soon again mark old Ben's rising hour. Before he had begun to take it easy. Six o'clock had seen the entire mechanism of his busy little world humming smoothly and sweetly, the whole set in motion by his own big work calloused hands. Those hands puzzled him now. He often looked at them curiously and in a detached sort of way, as if they belonged to someone else. So white they were, and smooth and soft, with long pliant nails that never broke off from rough work as they used to. Of late there were little splotches of brown on the backs of his hands and around the thumbs. "'Guess it's my liver,' he decided, rubbing the spots thoughtfully. "'She gets kind of sluggish for me not doing anything. Maybe a little spring tonic wouldn't go bad. Tone me up.' He got a little bottle of reddish-brown mixture from the druggist on Halstead Street, near 63rd. A genial gentleman, the druggist, white-coated and dapper, stepping affably about the fragrant-smelling store. The reddish-brown mixture had toned old Ben up surprisingly while it lasted. He had two bottles of it. But on discontinuing it he slumped back into his old apathy. Ben Westerveld, in his store clothes, his clean blue shirt, his incongruous hat, ambling aimlessly about Chicago's teeming gritty streets, was a tragedy. Those big, capable hands, now dangling so limply from inert wrists, had wrested a living from the soil. Those strangely unfaded blue eyes had the keenness of vision which comes from scanning great stretches of earth and sky. The stocky, square-shouldered body suggested power unutilized. All these spelled tragedy. Worse than tragedy, waste. For almost half a century this man had combated the elements. Head set, eyes wary, shoulders squared. He had fought wind and sun, rain and drought, scourge and flood. He had risen before dawn and slept before sunset. In the process he had taken on something of the color and the rugged immutability of the fields and hills and trees among which he toiled. Something of their dignity, too, 
though your town-dweller might fail to see it beneath the drab exterior. He had about him none of the highlights and sharp points of the city man. He seemed to blend in with the background of nature, so as to be almost indistinguishable from it, as were the furred and feathered creatures. This farmer differed from the city man as a hillock differs from an artificial gulf bunker, though form and substance are the same. Ben Westerveld didn't know he was a tragedy. Your farmer is not given to introspection. For that matter, anyone knows that a farmer in town is a comedy. Vaudeville, burlesque, the Sunday supplement, the comic papers have marked him a fair target for ridicule. Perhaps one should know him in his overalled, stubble-bearded days, with the rich black loam of the Mississippi bottomlands clinging to his boots. At twenty-five, given a tasseled cap, doublet and hose, and a long slim pipe, Ben Westerveld would have been the prototype of one of those rollicking, lusty young mynheers that laugh out at you from a Franz Hall's canvas. A roguish fellow with a merry eye, red-cheeked, vigorous, a serious mouth, though, and great sweetness of expression. As he grew older, the seriousness crept up and up, and almost entirely obliterated the roguishness. By the time the life of ease claimed him, even the ghost of that ruddy white of boyhood had vanished. The Westerveld ancestry was as Dutch as the name. It had been hundreds of years since the first Westervelds came to America and they had married and intermarried until the original Holland strain had almost entirely disappeared. They had drifted to southern Illinois by one of those slow processes of migration, and had settled in Calhoun County, then almost a wilderness, but magnificent with its rolling hills, majestic rivers, and gold and purple distances. But to the practical Westerveld mind, hills and rivers and purple haze existed only in their relation to crops and weather. Ben, though, had a way of turning his face up to the sky sometimes, and it was not to scan the heavens for clouds. You saw him leaning on the plow handle to watch the whirring flight of a partridge across the meadow. He liked farming. Even the drudgery of it never made him grumble. He was a natural farmer, as men are natural mechanics or musicians or salesmen. Things grew for him. He seemed instinctively to know facts about the kinship of soil and seed that other men had to learn from books or experience. It grew to be a saying in that section that Ben Westerveld could grow a crop on rock. At picnics and neighborhood frolics, Ben could throw farther and run faster and pull harder than any of the other farmer boys who took part in the rough games. And he could pick up a girl with one hand and hold her at arm's length while she shrieked and pretended fear and real ecstasy. The girls all liked Ben. There was that almost primitive strength which appealed to the untamed in them as his gentleness appealed to their softer side. He liked the girls, too, and could have had his pick of them. He teased them all, took them buggy-riding, bowed them about to the neighborhood parties. But by the time he was twenty-five the thing had narrowed down to the buyer's girl on the farm adjoining Westervelle's. There was what the neighbors called an understanding, though perhaps he had never actually asked the buyer's girl to marry him. You saw him going down the road toward the buyer's place four nights out of the seven. 
He had a quick light step at variance with his sturdy build, and very different from the heavy slouching gait of the work-weary farmer. He had a habit of carrying in his hand a little twig or switch cut from a tree. This he would twirl blithely as he walked along. The switch and the twirl represented just so much energy and animal spirits. He never so much as flicked a dandelion head with it. An inarticulate sort of thing, that courtship. Hello, Emma. How do, Ben? I thought you might like to walk a piece down the road. They got a calf at all T-Gens with five legs. I heard. I'd just as leaf walk a little piece. I'm kind of beat, though. We've got the threshers day after tomorrow. We've been cooking up. Beneath Ben's bonhomie and roguishness there was much shyness. The two would plod along the road together in a sort of blissful agony of embarrassment. The neighbors were right in their surmise that there was no definite understanding between them. But the thing was settled in the minds of both. Once Ben had said, Pop says I can have the North Eighty on easy payments if, when— Emma Byers had flushed uprightly, but had answered equitably, That's a fine piece. Your Pop is an awful good man. The stolid exteriors of these two hit much that was fine and forceful. Emma Byers's thoughtful forehead and intelligent eyes would have revealed that in her. Her mother was dead. She kept house for her father and brother. She was known as that smart Byers girl. Her butter and eggs and garden stuff brought higher prices at commercial twelve miles away than did any others in the district. She was not a pretty girl, according to the local standards. But there was about her, even at twenty-two, a clear-headedness and a restful serenity that promised well for Ben Westervelle's future happiness. But Ben Westervelle's future was not to lie in Emmer Byers's capable hands. He knew that as soon as he saw Bella Huckins. Bella Huckins was the daughter of old Red Front Huckins, who ran the saloon of that cheerful dame in commercial. Bella had elected to teach school not from any bent toward learning, but because teaching appealed to her as being a rather elegant occupation. The Hutchings family was not elegant. In that day a year or two of teaching in a country school took the place of a present-day normal school diploma. Bella had an eye on St. Louis, forty miles from the town of Commercial. So she used the country school as a step toward her ultimate goal, though she hated the country and dreaded her apprenticeship. "'I'll get a beau,' she said, who'll take me driving and around, and Saturdays and Sundays I can come to town." The first time Ben Westerveld saw her, she was coming down the road toward him in her tight-fitting black alpaca dress. The sunset was behind her, her hair was very golden. In a day of tiny wastes, hers could have been spanned by Ben Westervelle's two hands. He discovered that later. Just now he thought he had never seen anything so fairy-like and dainty, though he did not put it that way. Ben was not glib of thought or speech. He knew at once this was the new schoolteacher. He had heard of her coming, though at the time the conversation had interested him not at all. Bella knew who he was, too. She had learned the name and history of every eligible young man in the district two days after her arrival. That was due partly to her own bold curiosity, and partly to the fact that she was boarding with a widow Becker, the most notorious gossip in the county. 
In Bella's mental list of the neighborhood swains, Ben Westerveld already occupied a position at the top of the column. He felt his face redden as they approached each other. To hide his embarrassment, he swung his little hickory switch gaily and called to his dog, Dunder, who was nosing about by the roadside. Dunder bounded forward, spied the newcomer, and leaped toward her playfully and with natural canine curiosity. Bella screamed. She screamed and ran to Ben and clung to him, clasping her hands about his arm. Ben lifted the hickory switch in his free hand and struck Dunder a sharp cut with it. It was the first time in his life that he had done such a thing. If he had had a sane moment from that time until the day he married Bella Huckins, he never would have forgotten the dumb hurt in Dunder's stricken eyes and shrinking, quivering body. Bella screamed again, still clinging to him. Ben was saying, "'He won't hurt you, he won't hurt you.' Meanwhile, patting her shoulder reassuringly, he looked down at her pale face. She was so slight, so childlike, so apparently different from the sturdy country girls, from, well, from the girls he knew. Her helplessness, her utter femininity, appealed to all that was masculine in him. Bella, the experienced, clinging to him, felt herself swept from head to foot by a queer electric tingling that was very pleasant, but that still had in it something of the sensation of a wholesale bumping of one's crazy bone. If she had been anything but a stupid little flirt, she would have realized that here was a specimen of the virile male with which she could not trifle. She glanced up at him now, smiling faintly. My, I was scared! She stepped away from him a little, very little. Aw, oh, he wouldn't hurt a flea. But Bella looked over her shoulder fearfully to where Dunder stood by the roadside, regarding Ben with a look of uncertainty. He still thought that perhaps this was a new game, not a game that he cared for, but still one to be played if his master fancied it. Ben stooped up, picked up a stone, and threw it at Dunder, striking him in the flank. "'Go on home,' he commanded sternly. "'Go home.' He started toward the dog with a well-feigned gesture of menace. Dunder, with a low howl, put his tail between his legs and loped off home. A disillusioned dog. Bella stood looking up at Ben. Ben looked down at her. "'You're the new teacher, ain't you?' "'Yes. I guess you must think I'm a fool, going on like a baby about that dog.' Most girls would be scared of him if they didn't know he wouldn't hurt nobody. He's pretty big. He paused a moment, awkwardly. My name's Ben Westerveld. Pleased to meet you, said Bella. Which way was you going? There's a dog down at Teachin's that's enough to scare anybody. He looks like a pony, he's so big. I forgot something at the school this afternoon, and I was walking over to get it, which was a lie. I hope it won't get dark before I get there. You were going the other way, weren't you? Oh, I wasn't going no place in particular. I'll be pleased to keep you company down to the school and back. He was surprised at his own sudden masterfulness. They set off together, chatting as freely as if they had known one another for years. Ben had been on his way to the Byers farm as usual. The Byers farm and Emma Byers passed out of his mind as completely as if they had been whisked away on a magic rug. 
Bella Huckins had never meant to marry him. She hated farm life. She was contemptuous of farmer folk. She loathed cooking and drudgery. The Huckings lived above the saloon in commercial, and Mrs. Huckings was always boiling ham and tongue and cooking pig's feet and shredding cabbage for slaw, all those edibles being destined for the free lunch counter downstairs. Bella had early made up her mind that there should be no boiling and stewing and frying in her life. Whenever she could find an excuse, she loitered about the saloon. There she found life and talk and color. Old Red Front Huckins used to chase her away, but she always turned up again somehow with a dish for the lunch counter or an armful of clean towels. Ben Westerveld never said clearly to himself, I want to marry Bella. He never dared meet the thought. He intended honestly to marry Emma Byers. But this thing was too strong for him. As for Bella, she laughed at him, but she was scared, too. They both fought the thing, she selfishly, he unselfishly, for the Byers girl, with her clear calm eyes and her dependable ways, was heavy on his heart. Ben's appeal for Bella was merely that of the magnetic male. She never once thought of his finer qualities. Her appeal for him was that of the frail and alluring woman, but in the end they married. The neighborhood was rocked with surprise. Usually in a courtship it is the male who assumes the bright colors of pretense in order to attract a mate. But Ben Westerveld had been too honest to be anything but himself. He was so honest and fundamentally truthful that he refused at first to allow himself to believe that this slovenly shrew was the fragile and exquisite creature he had married. He had the habit of personal cleanliness had been in a day when tubbing was a ceremony in an environment that made bodily nicety difficult. He discovered that Bella almost never washed, and that her appearance of fragrant immaculateness when dressed was due to a natural clearness of skin and eye, and to the way her blonde hair swept away in a clean line from her forehead. For the rest she was a slattern with a vocabulary of invective that would have made a credit to any of the habitués of old Red Front Hawkins Bar. They had three children, a girl and two boys. Ben Westerveld prospered in spite of his wife. As the years went on he added eighty acres here and eighty acres there, until his land swept down to the very banks of the Mississippi. There is no doubt that she hindered him greatly, but he was too expert a farmer to fail. At threshing time the crew looked forward to working for Ben, the farmer, and dreaded the meals prepared by Bella, his wife. She was notoriously the worst cook and housekeeper in the county. And all through the years, in trouble and in happiness, her plaint was the same. If I thought I was going to stick down on a farm all my life, slavin' for a pack of menfolks day and night, I'd rather have died. Might as well be dead as rotten here. Her schoolteacher English had early reverted. Her speech was as slovenly as her dress. She grew stout, too, and unwieldy, and her skin coarsened from lack of care and from overeating. And in her children's ears she continually dinned a hatred of farm life and farming. You can get away from it, she counseled her daughter Minnie. Don't you be a rube like your pa, she cautioned John, the older son. And they profited by her advice. 
Minnie went to work in commercial when she was seventeen, an overdeveloped girl with an inordinate love of cheap finery. At twenty she married an artisan, a surly fellow with roving tendencies. They moved from town to town. He never stuck long at one job. John, the older boy, was as much his mother's son as Minnie was her mother's daughter. Restless, dissatisfied, empty-headed, he was the despair of his father. He drove the farm-horses as if they were racers, lashing them up hill and down dale. He was forever lounging off to the village or wheedling his mother for money to take him to commercial. It was before the day of the ubiquitous automobile. Given one of those present adjuncts to farm life, John would have ended his career much earlier. As it was, they found him lying by the roadside at dawn one morning, after the horses had trotted into the yard, with the wreck of the buggy bumping the road behind them. He had stolen the horses out of the barn after the help was asleep, had led them stealthily down the road, and then had whirled off to a rendezvous of his own in town. The fall from the buggy might not have hurt him, but evidently he had been dragged almost a mile before his battered body became somehow disentangled from the splintered wood and the reins. That horror might have served to bring Ben Westerfeld and his wife together, but it did not. It only increased her bitterness and her hatred for the locality and the life. "'I hope you're good and satisfied now,' she repeated in endless reproach. "'I hope you're good and satisfied. You was bound you'd make a farmer out of him, and now you've finished the job.' You better try your hand at Dyke now for a change. Dyke was young Ben, sixteen, and old Ben had no need to try his hand at him. Young Ben was a born farmer, as was his father. He had come honestly by his nickname. In face, figure, expression, and manner, he was a five-hundred-year throwback to his Holland ancestors. Apple-cheeked, stocky, merry of eye, and somewhat phlegmatic, when at school they had come to the story of the Dutch boy who saved his town from flood by thrusting his finger into the hole in the dike and holding it there until help came, the class, after one look at the accompanying picture in the reader, dubbed young Ben Dyke Westerveld, and Dyke he remained. Between Dyke and his father there was a strong but unspoken feeling. The boy was crop-wise as his father had been at his age. On Sundays you might see the two walking about the farm, looking at the pigs, great black fellows worth almost their weight in silver, eyeing the stock, speculating on the winter wheat showing dark green in April, with rich patches that were almost black. Young Dyke smoked a solemn and judicious pipe, spat expertly, and voiced the opinion that the winter wheat was a fine prospect. Ben Westerveld, listening tolerantly to the boy's opinions, felt a great surge of joy that he did not show. Here, at last, was compensation for all the misery and sordidness and bitter disappointment of his married life. The married life had endured now for more than thirty years. Ben Westerveld still walked with a light, quick step for his years. The stocky, broad-shouldered figure was a little shrunken. He was as neat and clean at fifty-five as he had been at twenty-five a habit that on a farm is fraught with difficulties. The community knew and respected him. He was a man of standing. When he drove into town on a bright winter morning, in his big sheepskin coat and his shaggy cap and his great boots, and entered the First National Bank, 
Even Shumway, the cashier, would look up from his desk to say, Hello, Westerveld. Hello. Well, how goes it? When Shumway greeted a farmer in that way, you knew that there were no unpaid notes to his discredit. All about Ben Westerveld stretched the fruit of his toil, the work of his hands. Orchards, fields, cattle, barns, silos, all these things were dependent on him for their future well-being, on him and on Dyke after him. His days were full and running over. Much of the work was drudgery, most of it was back-breaking and laborious. But it was his place. It was his reason for being. And he felt that the reason was good, though he never put that thought into words, mental or spoken. He only knew that he was part of the great scheme of things, and that he was functioning ably. If he had expressed himself at all, he might have said, Well, I got my work cut out for me, and I do it, and do it right. There was a tractor now, of course, and a sturdy middle-class automobile, in which Bella lolled red face when they drove into town. As Ben Westerveld had prospered, his shrewish wife had reaped her benefits. Ben was not the selfish type of farmer, who insists on twentieth-century farm implements and medieval household equipment. He had added a bathroom here, a cool summer kitchen there, an ice-house, a commodious porch, a washing-machine, even a bathroom. But Bella remained unplacated. Her face was set toward the city, and slowly, surely, the effect of thirty years of nagging was beginning to tell on Ben Westerveld. He was the finer metal, but she was the heavier, the coarser. She beat him and molded him as iron beats upon gold. Minnie was living in Chicago now, a good-natured creature, but slack like her mother. Her surly husband was still talking of his rights, and crying, Down with the rich! They had two children. Minnie wrote of them, and of the delights of city life, movies every night, Halstead Street just around the corner, the big stores, State Street. The L took you downtown in no time. Something going on all the while. Bella Westerfeld, after one of those letters, was more than a chronic shrew. She became a terrible termagant. When Ben Westerveld decided to concentrate on hogs and wheat, he didn't dream that a world would be clamoring for hogs and wheat for four long years. When the time came, he had them and sold them fabulously. But wheat and hogs and markets become negligible things on the day that Dyke, with seven other farm boys from the district, left for the nearest training camp that was to fit them for France and war. Bella made a real fuss, wailing and mouthing and going into hysterics. Old Ben took it like a stoic. He drove the boy to town that day. When the train pulled out, you might have seen, if you had looked close, how the veins and cords swelled in the lean brown neck above the clean blue shirt. But that was all. As the weeks went on, the quick light step began to lag a little. He had lost more than a son. His right-hand helper was gone. There were no farm helpers to be had. Old Ben couldn't do it all. A touch of rheumatism that winter half crippled him for eight weeks. Bella's voice seemed never to stop its plaint. There ain't no sense in you trying to make out alone. Next thing you'll die on me, and then I'll have the whole shebang on my hands. At that he eyed her dumbly from his chair by the stove. His resistance was wearing down. He knew it. He wasn't dying. He knew that, too. But 
Something in him was. Something that had resisted her all these years. Something that had made him master and superior in spite of everything. In those days of illness, as he sat by the stove, the memory of Emma Byers came to him often. She had left that district twenty-eight years ago, and had married and lived in Chicago somewhere he had heard, and was prosperous. He wasted no time in idle regrets. He had been a fool, and he paid the price of fools. Bella, slamming noisily about the room, never suspected the presence in the untidy place of a third person. A sturdy girl of twenty-two or three, very wholesome to look at, and with honest, intelligent eyes and a serene brow. "'It'll get worse and worse all the time,' Bella's whine went on. "'Everybody says the war'll last probably for years and years. You can't make out alone. Everything's going to rack and ruin. You could rent out the farm for a year on trial. The Burdickers'll take it and glad. They got those three strappin' louts that's all flat-footed or slab-side or cross-eyed or something, and no good for the army. Let em run it on shares. Maybe they'll even buy, if things turn out. Maybe Dyke'll never come—' But the look on his face then, and at the low growl of unaccustomed rage that broke from him, even she seized her clatter. They moved to Chicago in the early spring. The look— that had been on Ben Westervelt's face when he drove Dyke to the train that carried him to camp was stamped there again, indelibly this time, it seemed. Calhoun County in the spring has much the beauty of California. There is a peculiar golden light about it, and the hills are a purplish haze. Ben Westervelt, walking down his path to the gate, was more poignantly dramatic than any figure in a rural play. He did not turn to look back, though, as they do in a play. He dared not. They rented a flat in Englewood, Chicago, a block from Minnie's. Bella was almost amiable these days. She took to city life as though the past thirty years had never been. White kid shoes, delicatessen stores, the movies, the haggling with peddlers, the crowds, the crashing noise, the cramped unnatural mode of living necessitated by a four-room flat, all these urban adjuncts seemed as natural to her as though she had been bred in the midst of them. She and Minnie used to spend whole days in useless shopping. Theirs was a respectable neighborhood of well-paid artisans, bookkeepers, and small shopkeepers. The women did their own housework in drab garments and soiled boudoir caps that hid a multitude of unkempt heads. They seemed to find a great deal of time for amiable, empty gabbling. From seven to four you might see a pair of boudoir caps leaning from opposite bedroom windows, conversing across back porches, pausing in the task of sweeping front steps, standing on a street corner laden with grocery bundles. Minnie wasted hours in what she called running over to Ma's for a minute. The two quarreled a great deal, being so nearly of a nature. But the very qualities that combated each other seemed, by some strange chemical process, to bring them together as well. "'I'm going downtown today to do a little shopping,' Minnie would say. "'Do you want to come along, Ma?' "'What you got to get?' "'Oh, I thought I'd look at a couple little dresses for Pearlie. When I was your age I made every stitch you wore. Yeah, I bet they look like it, too. This ain't the farm. I got all I can do to tend to the house without sewing.' 
I did it. I did the housework and the sewing and cooking, and besides, a swell lot of housekeeping you did. You don't need to tell me. The bickering grew to a quarrel, but in the end they took the downtown L together. You saw them, flushed to face with twitching fingers, indulging in a sort of orgy of dime spending in the five and ten cent store on the wrong side of State Street. They pawed over bolts of cheap lace and bits of stuff in the stifling air of the crowded place. They would buy a sack of salted peanuts from the great mound in the glass case, or a bag of greasy pink candy piled in profusion on the counter, and this they would munch as they went. They came home late, fagged and irritable, and supplemented their hurried dinner with hastily bought food from the nearby delicatessen. Thus ran the life of ease for Ben Westerveld, a retired farmer, and so now he lay impatiently in bed, rubbing a nervous forefinger over the edge of the sheet, and saying to himself that, well, here was another day. What day was it? Let's see now. Yesterday was... yesterday. A little feeling of panic came over him. He couldn't remember what yesterday had been. He counted back laboriously, and decided that today must be Thursday. Not that it made any difference. They had lived in the city almost a year now, but the city had not digested Ben. He was a leathery morsel that could not be assimilated. There he stuck in Chicago's crop, contributing nothing, gaining nothing. A rube in a comic collar, ambling aimlessly about Halsted Street or State downtown. You saw him conversing hungrily with the gritty and taciturn Swede who was janitor for the block of red-brick flats. Ben used to follow him around pathetically, engaging him in the talk of the day. Ben knew no men except the surly Gus, Minnie's husband. Gus the firebrand thought Ben hardly worthy of his contempt. If Ben thought sometimes of the respect with which he had always been greeted when he clumped down the main street of commercial, if he thought of how the farmers from miles around had come to him for expert advice and opinion, he said nothing. Sometimes the janitor graciously allowed Ben to attend the furnace of the building in which he lived. He took out ashes, shoveled coal. He tinkered and rattled and shook things. You heard him shoveling and scraping down there, and smelled the acrid odor of his pipe. It gave him something to do. He would emerge sooty and almost happy. You been monkeying with that furnace again? Bella would scold. If you want something to do, why don't you plant a garden in the backyard and grow something? You was crazy about it on the farm. His face flushed a slow, dull red at that. He could not explain to her that he had lost no dignity in his own eyes in fussing about an inadequate little furnace, but that self-respect would not allow him to stoop to gardening, he who had reigned over six hundred acres of bountiful soil. On winter afternoons you saw him sometimes at the movies, whiling away one of his many idle hours in the dim, close-smelling atmosphere of the place. Tokyo and Rome and Gallipoli came to him. He saw beautiful tiger-women twining fair false arms about the stalwart but yielding forms of young men with cleft chins. He was only mildly interested. He talked to anyone who would talk to him, though he was naturally a shy man. He talked to the barber, the grocer, the druggist, the streetcar conductor, the milkman, the iceman. But the price of wheat did not interest these gentlemen. They did not know that the price of wheat was the most vital topic of conversation in the world. 
Well, now, he would say, you take this year's wheat crop. With about 917 million bushels of wheat harvested, why, that's what's going to win the war. Yes, sirree. No wheat, no winning, that's what I say. Yes, it is, the city men would scoff. But the queer part of it is that Farmer Ben was right. Minnie got into the habit of using him as a sort of nursemaid. It gave her many hours of freedom for gadding and gossiping. Pa, will you look after Pearlie for a little while this morning? I got to run downtown to match something, and she gets so tired and mean-acting if I take her along. Ma's gone with me." He loved the feel of Pearlie's small, velvet-soft hand in his big fist. He called her Little Feller, and fed her forbidden dainties. His big brown fingers were miraculously deft at buttoning and unbuttoning her tiny garments, and wiping her soft lips, and performing a hundred tender offices. He was playing a sort of game with himself, pretending this was Dyke become a baby again. Once the pair managed to get over to Lincoln Park, where they spent a glorious day looking at the animals, eating popcorn, and riding the miniature railway, they returned tired, dusty, and happy to a double tirade. Bella engaged in a great deal of what she called worrying about Dyke. Ben spoke of him seldom. But the boy was always present in his thoughts. They had written him of their move, but he had not seemed to get the impression of its permanence. His letters indicated that he thought they were visiting many or taking a vacation in the city. Dyke's letters were few. Ben treasured them and read them and reread them. When the armistice news came, and with it the possibility of Dyke's return, Ben tried to fancy him fitting into the life of the city and his whole being revolted at the thought. He saw the pimply-faced, sallow youths standing at the corner of Halstead and 63rd, spitting languidly and handling their limp cigarettes with an amazing labial dexterity. Their conversation was low-voiced, sinister and terse, and their eyes narrowed as they watched the overdressed, scarlet-lipped girls go by. A great fear clutched at Ben Westervelle's heart. The lack of exercise and manual labor began to tell on Ben. He did not grow fat with idleness. Instead, his skin seemed to sag and hang on his frame, like a garment grown too large for him. He walked a great deal. Perhaps that had something to do with it. He tramped miles of city payments. He was a very lonely man. And then, one day, quite by accident, he came upon South Water Street, came upon it, stared at it as a water-crazed traveler in a desert gazes upon the spring in the oasis, and drank from it thirstily, gratefully. South Water Street feeds Chicago. Into that close-packed thoroughfare come daily the fruits and vegetables that will supply a million tables. Ben had heard of it vaguely, but had never attempted to find it. Now he stumbled upon it, and standing there, felt at home in Chicago for the first time in more than a year. He saw ruddy men walking about in overalls and carrying whips in their hands, wagon whips, actually. He hadn't seen men like that since he had left the farm. The sight of them sent a great pang of homesickness through him. His hand reached out, and he ran an accustomed finger over the potatoes in a barrel on the walk. His fingers lingered and gripped them, and passed over them lovingly. At the contact something within him that had been tight and hungry seemed to relax, satisfied. 
It was his nerves, feeding on those familiar things for which they had been starving. He walked up one side and down the other, crates of lettuce, bins of onions, barrels of apples. Such vegetables! The radishes were scarlet globes. Each carrot was a spear of pure orange. The green and purple of fancy asparagus held his expert eye. The cauliflower was like a great bouquet fit for a bride. The cabbages glowed like jade. And the men! He hadn't dreamed there were men like that in this big, shiny, shod, stiffly laundered, white-collared city. Here were roughest men in overalls, worn, shabby, easy-looking overalls, and old blue shirts, and mashed hats worn at a careless angle. Men, jovial, good-natured, with clear eyes, and having about them some of the revivifying freshness and wholesomeness of the products they handled. Ben Westervelt breathed in the strong, pungent smells of onions and garlic, and of the earth that seemed to cling to the vegetables, washed clean though they were. He breathed deeply, gratefully, and felt strangely at peace. It was a busy street. A hundred times he had to step quickly to avoid a hand-truck or dray or laden wagon, and yet the busy men found time to greet him friendly. "'How are you?' they said genially. "'How are you this morning?' He was market-wise enough to know that some of these busy people were commission men and some grocers, and some buyers, stewards, clerks. It was a womanless thoroughfare. At the busiest business corner, though in front of the largest commission house on the street, he saw a woman. Evidently she was transacting business, too, for he saw the men bringing boxes of berries and vegetables for her inspection, a woman in a plain blue skirt and a small black hat. A funny job for a woman. What weren't they mixing into nowadays? He turned sidewise in the narrow, crowded space in order to pass her little group, and one of the men, a red-cheeked, merry-looking young fellow in a white apron, laughed and said, "'Well, Emma, you win. When it comes to driving a bargain with you, I quit. It can't be did.' Even then he didn't know her. He did not dream that this straight, slim, tailored, white-haired woman, bargaining so shrewdly with these men, was the Emmer Byers of the old days. But he stopped there a moment in frank curiosity, and the woman looked up. She looked up, and he knew those intelligent eyes and that serene brow. He had carried the picture of them in his mind for more than thirty years, so it was not surprising. He did not hesitate. He might have if he had thought a moment, but he acted automatically. He stood before her. You're Emma Byers, ain't you? She did not know him at first. Small blame to her. So completely had the roguish, vigorous boy vanished in this sallow, sad-eyed old man. Then, why, Ben, she said quietly, and there was pity in her voice, though she did not mean to have it there. She put out one hand, that capable, reassuring hand, and gripped his and held it a moment. It was queer and significant that it should be his hand that lay within hers. Well, what in all get out are you doing around here, Emma? He tried to be jovial and easy. She turned to the aproned man with whom she had been dealing and smiled. What am I doing here, Joe? Joe grinned waggishly. Nothing. Only beating every man on the street at his own game and making so much money that— But she stopped him there. I guess I'll do my own explaining. She turned to Ben again, 
And what are you doing here in Chicago? Ben passed a faltering hand across his chin. Me, well, I'm... we're living here, I suppose, living here. She glanced at him sharply. Left the farm, Ben? Yes. Wait a minute. She concluded her business with Joe, finished it briskly and to her own satisfaction. With her bright brown eyes and her alert manner and her quick little movements, she made you think of a wren, a business-like little wren, a very early wren that is highly versed in the worm-catching way. At her next utterance he was startled but game. Have you had your lunch? Why, no, I— I've been down here since seven, and I'm starved. Let's go and have a bite at the little Greek restaurant around the corner. A cup of coffee and a sandwich, anyway. Seated at the bare little table, she surveyed him with those intelligent, understanding, kindly eyes, and he felt the years slip from him. They were walking down the country road together, and she was listening quietly and advising him. She interrogated him gently. But something of his old masterfulness came back to him. No, I want to know about you first. I can't get the rights of it. You being here on South Water, trading and all? So she told him briefly. She was in the commission business. Successful. She bought, too, for such hotels as the Blackstone and the Congress, and for half a dozen big restaurants. She gave him bare facts, but he was shrewd enough and sufficiently versed in business to know that here was a woman of established commercial position. But how does it happen you're keeping it up, Emma, all this time? Why, you must be anyway—it ain't that you look it, but— He floundered, stopped. She laughed. That's all right, Ben. I couldn't fool you on that. And I'm working because it keeps me happy. I want to work till I die. My children keep telling me to stop, but I know better than that. I'm not going to rust out. I want to wear out. Then, at an unspoken question in his eyes, he's dead these twenty years. It was hard at first when the children were small, but I knew garden stuff if I didn't know anything else. It came natural to me, that's all. So then she got his story from him bit by bit. He spoke of the farm and of Dyke, and there was a great pride in his voice. He spoke of Bella and the son who had been killed, and of Minnie, and the words came falteringly. He was trying to hide something, and he was not made for deception. When he had finished, Now listen, Ben. You go back to your farm. I can't. She— I can't. She leaned forward earnestly. You go back to the farm. He turned up his palms with a little gesture of defeat. I can't. You can't stay here. It's killing you. It's poisoning you. Did you ever hear of toxins? That means poisons, and you're poisoning yourself. You'll die of it. You've got another twenty years of work in you. What's ailing you? You go back to your wheat and your apples and your hogs. There isn't a bigger job in the world than that. For a moment his face took on a glow from the warmth of her own inspiring personality, but it died again. When they rose to go, his shoulders drooped again, his muscles sagged. At the doorway he paused a moment, awkward in farewell. He blushed a little, stammered, Emma, I always wanted to tell you. God knows it was luck for you the way it turned out, but I always wanted to— She took his hand again in her firm grip at that, and her kindly, bright brown eyes were on him. 
I never held it against you, Ben. I had to live a long time to understand it, but I never held a grudge. It just wasn't meant to be, I suppose. But listen to me, Ben. You do as I tell you. You go back to your wheat and your apples and your hogs. There isn't a bigger man-sized job in the world. It's where you belong." Unconsciously his shoulders straightened again. Again they sagged. And so they parted, the two. He must have walked almost all the long way home, through miles and miles of city streets. He must have lost his way, too, for when he looked up at a corner street sign it was an unfamiliar one. So he floundered about, asked his way, was misdirected. He took the right streetcar at last, and got off at his own corner at seven o'clock or later. He was in for a scolding, he knew. But when he came to his own doorway he knew that even his tardiness could not justify the bedlam of sound that came from within. High-pitched voices, Bella's above all the rest, of course, but there was Minnie's, too, and Gus's growl, and Pearlie's treble, and the boy Ed's, and— At the other voice his hand trembled so that the knob rattled in the door, and he could not turn it. But finally he did turn it and stumbled in, breathing hard, and that other voice was Dyke's. He must have just arrived. The flurry of explanation was still in progress. Dyke's knapsack was still on his back, and his canteen at his hip, his helmet slung over his shoulder. A brown, hard, glowing Dyke, strangely tall and handsome, and older, too, older. All this Ben saw in less than one electric second. Then he had the boy's two shoulders in his hands, and Dyke was saying, Hello, Pop. Of the roomful, Dyke and old Ben were the only quiet ones. The others were talking up the explanation and going over it again and again, and marveling and asking questions. He come into what's that place, Dyke? Uh, Hoboken, yesterday only, and he sent a dispatch to the farm. Can't you read our letters, Dyke, that you didn't know we was here now? And then he's only got an hour more. Uh, they got to go to Camp Grant to be now uh, demobilized. He came out to Minnie's on a chance. Ain't he big? But Dyke and his father were looking at each other quietly. Then Dyke spoke. His speech was not phlegmatic as of old. He had a new clipped way of uttering his words. Say, Pop, you ought to see the way the Frenchies form. They got about an acre each, and say they use every inch of it. If they's a little dirt blows into the crotch of a tree, they plant a crop in there. I never seen nothing like it. Say, we waste enough stuff over here to keep that whole country in food for a hundred years. Yes, sir. And tools? Out of the ark, believe me. If they ever saw our tractor, they'd think it was the Germans coming back. But they're smart at that. I picked up a lot of new ideas over there. And you ought to see the old birds, women folks and men about eighty years old, running everything on the farm. They had to. I learned something off of them about farming. Forget the farm, said Minnie. Yeah, echoed Gus. Forget the farm stuff. I can get you a job here out at the works for four-fifty a day, and six when you learn it right. Dyke looked from one to the other, alarm and unbelief on his face. What do you mean, a job? Who wants a job? What you all— Bella laughed jovially. For heaven's sakes, Dyke, wake up. We're living here. This is our place. We ain't rubes no more. Dyke turned to his father. A little stunned look crept into his face. 
a stricken, pitiful look, there was something about it that suddenly made old Ben think of Pearlie when she had been slapped by her quick-tempered mother. "'But I've been counting on the farm,' he said miserably. "'I've just been living on the idea of coming back to it. Why, I—the streets here, they're all narrow and choked up. I've been counting on the farm. I want to go back and be a farmer. I want—and then Ben Westerveld spoke. A new Ben Westerveld, the old Ben Westerveld. Ben Westerveld, the farmer, the monarch over six hundred acres of bounteous bottomland. That's all right, Dyke, he said. You're going back. So am I. I've got another twenty years of work in me. We're going back to the farm. Bella turned on him, a wildcat. We ain't, not me. We ain't, I ain't a going back to the farm. But Ben Westerveld was master again in his own house. You're going back, Bella, he said quietly. And things are going to be different. You're going to run the house the way I say, or I'll know why. If you can't do it, I'll get them in that can. And me and Dyke, we're going back to our wheat and our apples and our hogs. Yes, sir. There ain't a bigger man-sized job in the world. End of Farmer in the Dell